0: Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm.
1: Welcome to Medicine on Call, where it's all about living in the solutions. Today I have a a very special guest, a a medical colleague on, who's going to speak to us today about a topic I think that's been in the news, it's been very emotionally charged, and that's about the idea of gender, um, dysphoria and gender identification, and I, you know, I'm I'm a doctor, I'm a scientist, and there was a, a person running for, I think the governor of Louisiana, who's a physician, who said that he when, he when a child was born, he the parents asked one thing, is it a boy or a girl, and he got railroaded because of that statement. And I'm a biology major, so when people talk about sex, it's very clear there's two genetically distinct sexes. And I'd like to discuss and explore language versus science versus societal mores, because I think that we're, we're conflating all of them. And so I want to welcome my guest, uh, Dr. Paul Hruz. He is the Associate Professor of Pediatrics in Cell Biology and Physiology at the Washington University School of Medicine. He graduated from the Medical Scientist University in St. Louis and has a pediatric residency from the University of Washington in Seattle, a fellowship in pediatric endocrinology at Washington University in, Louis- in uh, St. Louis, and he has... Um, been the chief of pediatric endocrinology and diabetes uh, diabetes, um, mellitus, and a member of the university multidisciplinary care program with sexual development. So this is someone who can speak to a lot of the science about what it means to be male, female, and all the things in between that people are trying to come up with. So Dr. Haruz, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I know that you're busy, you're lecturing all the time. So, thank you for joining me today.
2: It's certainly my pleasure to be here and talking about this very, very important topic.
1: You know, I I wanted to touch best start off with the science of it, because when people talk about male and female, all of a sudden people are, and especially England, seems to be the epicenter of this, that there's a continuum, that there is no real biological difference between the sexes, and it, it is, you are what you say you are. So let's let's break it down. What is the difference between sex, gender, gender identity and sexual orientation so people can get a primer?
2: I think that's a great place to start because it's important that we understand what the terms uh, that we're using in the discussion and, and what they really mean. And I think there's a lot of confusion uh, in discussions, even amongst our, our fellow uh, physicians and scientists, of using terms like gender and sex interchangeably when they really are intended to convey uh, very different uh, realities. And so, sex is is really defined in relation. Uh, to the role of an individual in the process of reproduction, and that's not a controversial statement it's something that we've always understood and doesn't just apply to human beings it applies to animals throughout the animal kingdom and uh, and there's a very u- unique role that a female contributes to that process and and uh, the male individual of the species uh, to that process as well. Um, the term gender actually really is a relatively new term and and we used to always think of uh, how somebody expresses themselves uh, socially uh, in relation to uh, you know that that process of, of sex and and really you know it is a distinct term um, that conveys a whole different entity you know gender sex being very um, objective and, and very easy to define gender the the roles that individuals uh, Take uh, socially uh, as masculine or feminine. You know, certainly has changed uh, over in different cultures and, and over time. But in, in acknowledging that they're different terms, uh, it's really important uh, that they're not necessarily distinct. They're actually interrelated. So uh, when we're talking about masculine and feminine. Um, uh, gender uh, expression. It, it really, we've always understood this in terms of the role that the male and female has in that reproductive process, not only in, in bringing uh, the two members of the species, you know, male and female together, but also the rearing of, of the, the children that come from, from that sexual uh, union. Uh, and, and so we have to keep that in mind. And, and certainly in my realm, that when you use terms uh, of gender, for example, when you're talking about um, laboratory animals, for example, um, you know, what one means actually is is sex, Mm -hmm. and and it's it's so important to keep that in mind, because when we're talking about in areas of medicine, sex really makes a difference in in how one approaches uh, effective medical care, and this is actually very well understood, the National Institute of Health um, that... uh, that funds research studies, mandates that we study uh, both males and females uh, when we're trying to make conclusions about medical interventions, recognizing that males and females are going to respond differently biologically because of the differences um, uh, to various interventions. And so we can't dismiss that um, in in thinking about this to be able to deliver the the most effective medical care. Mm.
1: And so, so sexual orientation then is, is that more of a biological construct or is that a societal one?
2: so sexual orientation relates to um, uh, the uh, who one is attracted to uh, for for sexual uh, interactions and again, you know thinking about this from a purely biological um, uh, uh, perspective you know we're thinking about sex in relation to reproduction um we we've introduced uh, people that are sexually attracted uh, to members of the same sex um and and certainly it's, it's just conveying a whole different uh uh entity. Mm -hmm. And and there's much that we could say about that. But in in relation to these issues of of discussions about gender identity, uh, it's important to recognize that it's a distinct term and it does have relevance as far as the people that are presenting with different gender identities and and, and their sexuality. But to be able to look at the whole condition of of people that have a discordance between their Gender identity and their biological sex. um, You know, it's important to keep that part of that separate um, Recognizing that many people will uh, have an uh, Gender identity that is influenced by that sexual orientation
1: Gotcha. So the con the the bounds of our of our discussion today is about gender dysphoria And so that implies that you are not happy with What you what you are biologically? Right. So if you're a male, you you think that you're born as a female, but you're in the wrong body. Is that the best way to think about it? Uh,
2: you know, I would say that, um, you know, that this concept of gender identity is is really uh, a, a self-perception. So, it, you know, it is, is distinct from an objective um, uh, reality as far as biological sex that that any, uh observer can actually uh help in, in making that uh, objective assessment mm-hmm. gender identity is is really within the domain of, of an individual's experience, and so it's very very difficult um for example, there is no biological test um that can establish one's gender it really is something that the uh patient uh him or herself uh declares and um and it has real meaning for that individual and so um you know I think it is uh uh, an important distinction and we need to understand uh, what we mean by by gender and how that's very different uh, From the role of a physician or even a scientist in trying to study this uh, uh, um, Issue
1: so when somebody identify well for me it seems It seems as it seemed that there's more people identifying as with having gender dysphoria than ever before. I really don't remember that many people in science, in medical school. It just seemed to be a very, very small number of people and now it doesn't seem that way at all.
2: And that's certainly true I think uh really prior to even just a couple of decades ago uh, this particular condition of people having a gender identity that is discordant with biological sex was was a very very rare uh, phenomenon a fraction of a fraction of a percent and if you look at um, our own you know the psychological manual the DSM uh, which uh, classifies uh, you know various psychological conditions uh, reported statistics of 0005 percent and varying between males and females. And now uh, the assessments, there's some people that are estimating that, that people are having this particular gender discordance, uh, anywhere from a half a percent and even some studies up to 3% of the entire population. It, it's important to recognize that the way that those statistics are are drawn are, are heavily influenced by the questions that are asked. And there are a number of different hypotheses uh, or potential explanations as to why we're seeing this tremendous rise, And and really much of the data is coming from people that are are presenting to specific uh, clinics to be able to uh, engage the medical profession to help them align their body with their gender identity, um, that we're seeing this increase in numbers. And probably some of the best data is coming from uh, the UK where they have all of the patients that are, are being you know, presenting for this medical intervention go to the same center, and, and there we're seeing several thousand percent increases. We're going from um, uh, very small numbers, uh, almost exponentially, uh, uh, over just a, a very short period of time, about five or ten years. Mm-hmm. And, and we can ask questions about why that is. It, it's often put forward that these patients uh, had always existed. They just did not have a place uh, to go to, to seek help uh, for the distress, the distress that they're experiencing. Um, but there's a lot of concern that, that what is going on in, in the social uh Media and the discussions that are going on and and the recognition of of this condition and how we're approaching it uh, very differently now than we had in the past might be driving uh, many individuals uh, to this conclusion about Mm -hmm. gender discordance when they uh, would have um, come to a different understanding of the difficulty that they might be experiencing, for example, during periods of development, trying to sort out uh, their overall identity in, in other areas of their life. And so there's much that we do not still know about this Mm -hmm. but what you had stated is is true um, and it's very concerning um, that we're seeing such a large increase there's a need to understand better what's going on uh, and and really for those that are are really experiencing significant distress related to that to find out what is the best way to to help them and and manage that
1: on that note let's take our first break you're listening to medicine on call Dr. George from Medicine On Call. Each week I speak about our healthcare system and the problems with it. One of the main problems is the doctor-patient relationship. I've found that patients really crave time, the time to ask their doctor questions, and physicians crave the time to answer those questions in a thorough manner. Towards that end, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is pleased to announce a new video telemedicine service. We now offer consultation for second opinions and for people who'd like to learn more and ask questions about how to navigate the healthcare system in a cost-effective and efficient manner. Go to peachtreeentcenter.video-visits.com to learn more. From treatment of
3: sinusitis with balloon dilation to minimally invasive office procedures to correct snoring, Peachtree ENT Center offers state-of-the-art care. We also specialize in price transparency. You'll know the cost of our ENT services before they're rendered, whether you have a high deductible plan or no insurance at all. Make an appointment today to find out why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. Welcome back to Medicine on
1: Call. We're speaking with Dr. Paul Cruz, the Associate Professor of Pediatric and Cell Biology and Physiology at the Washington University School of Medicine. And before the break, I think we were really getting the overview. I'd like to drill a little bit more down on the developmental side since I'm blessed that you're a pediatrician and you can actually speak to a lot of things that you're you you know you're dealing with every day, and, and that's child development. And from... M- my, I mean, what I've read about this movement, it seems to be a movement almost, that there are milestones that children have to meet. P, you know, Going through puberty is one of them, in adolescence. And if you intervene with gender dysphoria and you have a, a, it seems to me, a process, once the child is identified, or basically it even seems like parents are deciding not to have their child reared, some of them, with following any kind of um Gender roles and it's kind of confusing. Is it confusing to the child to be just well, given it, it, this platform?
2: Um, certainly, there, there's a, a tremendous number of influences um, in child development in in many areas, uh, even independent of, of areas of, of sexual identity. Um, you know that it, that a child will normally struggle with. Um, you, you know this this whole phenomenon of of children that are having issues in understanding. Uh, their gender identity in relation to their sex or those that have a gender identity that, that differs from their sex. Um, really, in relation to that developmental process, so that uh, when when claims are made uh, that that a child is uh, born with a, a transgendered identity um, and it's present at birth um, and it can't be changed and and um, you know it, it is who they are, there's a, a lot of scientific evidence that really uh, would challenge that uh, those types of assertions mm-hmm. and and even the data that's emerging right now as far as the number of adolescents that have had no prior uh, Confusion about uh, gender identity presenting during the junior high and high school years. um, You know that that they're presenting uh, with this uh, uh, transgendered identity, and and in children, um, you know there there are uh, children will naturally. Explore and and try to to figure out who they are and it really does reach a a very critical phase of of identity development uh, during this period of adolescence and and, uh, we have to remember that puberty and adolescence um, are happening at at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Puberty is referring to the biological changes that are transforming the child uh, from prior to puberty to to be uh, sexually uh, reproductively competent Um, but at the same time uh, there are a tremendous number of, of Things that are occurring as that child transitions from childhood to adulthood that are are quite challenging, that are quite difficult uh, for them to navigate, and and that's uh, one of the issues um, that uh, that is. Anybody that looks at this uh, particular condition uh, of how that child is able to integrate that and, and really identify and, and understand who they are, and and when presented with mere questioning, um, being uh, encouraged uh, you know to uh, in any one particular way um, may actually alter the the normal outcomes that one may experience it It's well known in children that uh and and again people have tried to challenge this but uh and I would say that some of the earlier studies that were done were small and had some of the same weaknesses that uh, the other literature in this field uh, may still have um but uh over a dozen studies over several decades have consistently shown that the vast majority of children that present with a transgender identity um if merely left alone. Uh, will have spontaneous realignment of their gender identity with their sex. I think the best estimates are close to about 85% or 90%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, you know, one has, and this was actually e- even my own professional society that came out with guidelines in 2009, uh, cautioned against social affirmation, encouraging a child uh, in a transgendered identity uh, that was uh, not yet in puberty because of this known uh, phenomenon of, of realignment of, of gender identity with uh, biological sex. And so um, there's, there are many concerns uh, and we can certainly ask this as a hypothesis as to some of that large increase in the number of people uh, that are presenting to gender clinics might fit into that category that uh, if otherwise left alone and, and not uh, uh, affirmed in that and, and encouraged in that the transgender identity, um, you know, would have had that uh, spontaneous desistance. The problem is, is that even though that number is not 100%, there's no way to identify, um in any one individual child, uh, wh- which category that they're going to be in. And, and knowing that, that the vast majority will have that assistance, uh, will then, um not, uh, expose them to potentially, um uh, harmful, uh, med- uh, medical interventions mm-hmm. that, uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about as well.
1: Oh, we definitely will. I mean, to me, to my mind, if one child goes this route where they realign with their section there and their perceived orientation, I'm sorry, their, their identity, then that's one child that, you know, that you really shouldn't be making these interventions from on high, that everybody fits a category so everybody gets the same treatment. It almost seems like an algorithm-based treatment. And as soon as the child, and I think, you know, how much of this is subjective, Where the parents may think that the child has, you know, they like to play with cars or whatever, and they're uh, a girl, and they like to play with dolls, and it's a boy, and all of a sudden, they must have gender dysphoria, and then the next thing you know, they're being put into a tract of seeing a physician, and socially, I've seen some really kind of scary things happen where children are being removed from parents' households if the parent doesn't want to go along with treatment. Is that... An outlier? Is that really what we're seeing?
2: Well, you know, I I think that, you know, maybe from the terms of uh, that we use in medicine, you know, when we're looking at uh, particular interventions, and we can, you know, expand this to any intervention that we might be proposing uh, to alleviate, you know, true suffering that's going on. You know, there's a, when a drug exists, for example, for a disease and you, you're, uh, advocating a new treatment, uh, regimen, you know, there's, there's the concept of non-inferiority so that, um, if you have an outcome that leads to 85% resolution of the condition, you know, in your intervention, then the first, uh, uh, requisite that you would have in, in you know, making a, a decision about whether that was the right way to go is, is it as good or, um, or better than existing, uh, interventions, uh, or is it worse? And so, um you know so the the question about uh, how many children are being affected by this and how many um, are being driven to go on to um, uh, medical interventions hormonal treatments and, and maybe surgery is mm-hmm. is not clear but uh, certainly it can be asked um, as far as uh, you know a, a scientific question um, and really you know looking at this in terms of uh, what's going on here uh, as an as an ongoing experiment we don't really have the answers and and yet we're uh, stating with uh, increased um, a vigor and and certitude when we really don't have the evidence to support that that certitude um, So we need to have be very cautious about what we're doing. I think the motivations uh, for social affirmation are based upon uh, a fear uh, that if, if you do not socially affirm a child who uh, is expressing behavior that um, or an identity uh, a transgendered identity that they're going to commit suicide. And again, we can look at the data um, that really uh, you know whether that's true or not. And the and the reality is we don't have the data that we need uh, to make that uh, conclusion. Um, and uh, we actually have data uh, that in adults a uh, different population but certainly data that we need to consider that would question that uh, you know rationale that really that you know, how, how much in the long-term do we influence uh, the, the depression and, and all of the other uh, difficulties that they, these individuals experience.
1: Well, um, on that note, let's take our second break. You're listening to Medicine on Call.
3: Are you having problems with persistent bad breath, constant throat clearing, hoarseness, a cough that won't go away, a sore throat, or a feeling that something's always stuck in your throat? Why not find out what the problem is so it can be fixed? At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking time to work with our patients as a team to get to the root of the problem. Make an appointment today to see why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com.
1: You're listening to Medicine on Call, where healthcare, business, and current events connect.
0: that will help you, give you a better idea of what's going on in the market. All you need to do to get a hold of the Bubba Report is go to thebubbershow.org and sign up for the newsletter, or you can email me direct at bubba at the bubba show.org. We want you to have this report because we've got over 150 years of experience talking about markets, getting ready for the trading, and puts you in the best position to have successful. So email me at bubba at the bubba to get a copy of your report or go right to the website, thebubbershow.org. Make sure you get it. It's a must-have for every investor and trader. The Bubba Report.
1: Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Dr. Paul Hruz, the associate professor of pediatrics and cell biology and physiology at the Washington University School of Medicine. Um, he's authored over sixty peer reviewed manuscripts. I have multiple sci- scientific reviews and book chapters, and someone who's been speaking on this topic and has knowledge, not just talking, but actually understanding the nuance. And there's a lot of nuance here. This is somebody's life we're talking about and how they integrate in society. And, you know, there are long term studies, are there not, of people who have gone through the medical side treatment for gender dysphoria what's the outcome from their how they perform mentally socially as it, as time goes on is there a higher amount of depression anxiety any other mental issues
2: um, very good question and um, you know we first need to consider where they're starting with what we know very well i think that there's a number of studies that clearly show across the board people that uh, have a transgendered identity have an alarmingly high rates of depression anxiety eating disorders substance abuse having been victims of um domestic violence, homelessness, and, and, you know, these are very real areas of suffering uh, that the individuals experience. And so to want to address this from a medical uh, perspective, you know, is is really warranted. We need to really think about what's going on and how we can help these individuals. Mm-hmm. When we look at what data is currently available for the, the treatment of these individuals and, and really the current treatment paradigm, really beginning with the social affirmation and then proceeding on to hormonal treatment's with or without surgery. In children, we have uh, no long-term data. We've got some short-term data that suggests that in the short run, there may be uh, some alleviation of of the dysphoria itself. There uh, may be a a lessening of depression, uh, persistence of anxiety. There are many weaknesses in the studies that are done uh, in in children in this area uh, that we could certainly talk about that may question whether the results even themselves are valid. But even if we take them on face value that they are, they are short-term studies, There's right back. Significant amount of selection bias that's present in these studies. They're not adequately controlled, and many of them are not controlled at all, or used improper controls. And so, to be able to have confidence in the results, you know, is is very difficult. And, and so, we can get hints about maybe asking new hypotheses and designing the rigorous trials that need to be done. The long-term studies uh, that are available uh, are, are in adults that were uh, treated in this manner, given uh, the hormonal treatments, and and with or without surgery And probably the, the largest and longest study that, that's out there came out of Sweden. And Sweden has a, a, a wonderful health registry where they can look full of data. Alarmingly, you know, 20 years out, the individuals that went through the hormone treatment and, and the, uh, the uh, with or without surgery maintained a very high level of uh, completed suicides and, and um, all sorts of psychosocial problems. Now that that study itself wasn't controlled, so you can't really make a, a valid conclusion about what the intervention did mm-hmm. uh, relative to, to not doing anything. But you can very confidently conclude that it didn't solve the problem. That that there's still significant problems that are occurring uh, in relation to people that are not transgendered, and so it's not the answer. Now, many people will put forward some hypotheses as to why there's a persistence, and that again, as an experimental question, I think you know is is worth considering. But to make the statement, you know that that this is the way that we have to go forward when the existing evidence itself doesn't really support that. You know, if you look at at the rates of suicide being very, very high, and again, their estimates will vary somewhat. Over half of of all uh, transgendered individuals will have contemplated suicide at some point in their life and uh, unfortunately, many of them will act upon that. Uh, when you look at uh, long-term data, there was a, a study that came out, a, a meta-analysis where they looked at um, a, a large number of studies, um, each with individual weaknesses and, and limitations, but compared uh, the collection of all of these studies, when you look at whether they had suicidal ideation within the past year, meaning after they've had the uh, affirmation, uh, the hormonal interventions with or without surgery, uh, and you know, compare that to their entire lifetime, mm-hmm. uh, really the incidences are the same. They don't really differ at all. Um, so when we look collectively, um, at least there's there's reason to question uh, what is being put forward. When you look at short-term outcomes, uh, there's reason to believe that uh, there may be uh, a short-term alleviation. But, again, getting back to, to the area of children, if, if you've interfered with your ability to resolve some of these uh normal developmental stages. And and really, um, that wasn't the underlying difficulty that they were having. We're assigning it to a gender issue. Mm -hmm. When there was something else that was going on in that child, it it would reason, you know, to um, at least uh, hypothesize that um, this is not going to be a good long-term solution. And when you look at, at really the data in adults, most of the individuals that recognize that, that uh, intervention, medical intervention to align the body with their gender identity, you know, will go eight to ten years before they recognize that it didn't really help them, and then um, you know, seek to, to have that uh, realignment, you know, that dissensus at that point in time. And, and when you look at the long-term uh, data, there's studies out there looking at all causes of death in transgendered individuals compared to the, uh, the, the non-transgender population. And where you see that separation, um, you know, fivefold increase in all causes of death, you know that that break point is at about eight to ten years, and so I don't think we've understood this condition and and the intervention that we're proposing in children for a long enough period of time uh, to really um, to know for sure what we're doing. And again, that's why um, I think that if we're going to be objective about uh, looking at this, we have to uh, realize that we're still in the in the midst of a, a very large experiment, and unfortunately, it's not a controlled experiment. Uh, we may uh, find out in the future that that. If this isn't the wisest approach, uh, you know, to proceed to help these individuals. Uh, yeah. uh, in, in the process, uh, there will be many that uh, will have been harmed.
1: I agree with that. And I think that there seems to be a sea change in the, from a social and medical perspective on how it's treated, right? I mean, you talked about the DSM, which is the diagnostic category, it's a psychological um, compendium that lets us know what's considered to be psychologically, I don't want say abnormal necessarily, but... Might have a medical condition associated with it. It's a lack of a PC way to put it. But the DSM-4 versus the DSM-5, and specifically with gender dysphoria, changed, didn't it? It went from a, a no-touch, you know, monitor, take time and actually let this unfold versus aggressive um, intervention. And it's a big change, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Well, so the DSM, uh, the difference from the DSM 4 to the DSM 5, um, really the change that was made was in how we even look at the condition. So um, it had been previously classified as gender identity disorder, uh, and, and really the the paradigm for thinking about it was that when there is this discordance between one's gender identity and uh, their biological sex. Um, that what, there was something going on uh, within um, the thinking within within the brain itself. Mm-hmm. The the transition to the new the DSM five was was to take away uh, what was considered a stigma of calling this a disorder and asserting that this was just a part of normal variation. And so, um, to keep uh, the medical interventions as a viable option, was to focus on the actual discomfort. So, going from gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria. Um, it's important to, to point out that that is not that was not based upon scientific evidence there was no, no scientific data or any studies that they came out um, that necessitated that change it was a, a different way of looking at it and it was actually contested and, and, and vigorously debated at the time but the consequences of that shift uh, whether it's right or, or wrong it has had a lot to do with uh, the approaches that have been put forward for the treatment of this particular condition so you know logically speaking if, if you you understand that if there's this discordance between bi- uh, biology and uh, one's identity, that um, if, if the problem is, is a psychological. Um in nature, that the solutions would be uh, psychological as well. So, yeah. undergoing counseling and helping that individual um, recognize what uh, some of the other issues in their life that contribute to their depression and, and some of the other uh, things that we know are, are heavily associated uh, with this uh, this particular condition. In making that change of, of dismissing that and making the assertion that uh, the problem was not with the mind, that the mind is perfectly healthy, and that the problem was with the way the body was formed. Um, the logical uh, you know approach then would be to, to um, work to realign the appearance of the body so it really did lead to a, a dramatic uh, shift in, in how we approach this condition uh, and you know based upon the premise that is made um, it would make sense um, it, it is valid to, to question you know what is going on um, and uh, from the area of medicine you know looking at the specific interventions about uh, what is the effect of of altering the appearance of the body uh, in in that particular condition Mm -hmm. and uh, what the outcomes of that are and all the consequences associated with that. They're not necessarily benign uh, interventions that have very important uh, medical consequences.
1: I I would agree. And, you know, let's take our, our last break because I want to talk about the treatment in more detail. So let's take a small break and return. You're listening to Medicine On Call. You're listening to Medicine On Call, where healthcare, business, and current events connect. Welcome back to Medicine On Call. Before the break, we were really teasing out the mental side of this, the, the DSM, the how the brain interact or is integrated with this. And I want to segue just one second. For those who think that it's uh, genetic versus environmental, what's the consensus of that? I mean, are people born with this, you know, real gender dysphoria, not the ones that are social constructed, but from an infant, so yeah,
2: yeah. The, the question of, of what is the uh, etiology or the cause of, of this condition? Uh, the, the simple answer is we don't know. I think if, if anyone is honest about um, you know what, what has been looked at, um, there are many questions that remain. Um, there is some evidence um, that there is a genetic association. That these are our studies that were done in, in identical twins and comparing them to non identical twins. Um, but I, it's important to note that by uh, even you know making this genetic association it does not necessitate causation meaning that there are many conditions that we know of that have that are heritable meaning they can be inherited that don't determine who a person is and and when we look at these genetic associations uh, there are many many reasons why there may be that association again we, we we try to distinguish between associations and causations and and one hypothesis for example is that the genetic um one genetic contributor might the uh, resiliency or the, the ability of an individual to re- respond to, to stress, and, and there's many others that we could uh, put forward. And then there's lots of evidence uh, that uh, that there are environmental factors that, that help uh, contribute to this particular condition. Just looking at at uh, family dynamics, uh, exposure to uh, prior abuse, a very large increase uh, in the incidence of transgender identity in autistic children, for example, um, and you know that provides clues. The best that we can probably say is that this is a multifactorial condition, meaning that there are many different contributors, uh, that the uh, largest influence is likely to be uh, environmental, not genetic, uh, and that in any one individual, the contributors might Uh, differ in in the exact nature and also the extent. And that's really important when we consider the scientific studies uh, that have been put forward uh, in the treatment regimens that are based on very, very small sample sizes and many times they're not generalizable uh, to a a wider population. So we have to keep that in mind. But it is important to continue efforts to understand this because the more we understand about the cause, uh, the better we're going to be uh, in proposing uh, interventions that are going to be truly helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the current state we we have much uh, more unknown than than known
1: thank you uh, for that clarification so now I'd like to take the last segment and really tease out the the treatment side of this you mentioned we talked about it briefly social affirmation just for those who need a little bit more meat around that what does that mean exactly
2: yeah and, and I think in looking at this you know you can think about this even you know prior to the medical interventions this is already done at a at a societal level so that is is really um re- revolves around uh somebody's um the way they dress uh, their bathroom access um you know how they relate to their peers at school um you know, the name changes, pronoun usage, all of those things are are within that that domain. Um, And uh, rather than allowing a child to explore and and saying that, you know, you can have, for example, a a female uh, person, uh, you know, Playing with trucks and, and uh, a bail, uh, you know, playing with dolls, trying to, to take that and say that this is one's identity, and really, uh, you know, push them, you know, and affirm them as not just expressing themselves in, in one particular way, but making a concerted efforts to to reinforce that they really are the opposite sex. And, mm-hmm. and this is not just in, in what's involves a, a social dimension to that is, is it's not confined just to the child. Um, it involves the parents, peers, schools, teachers, you know, all of the community uh, that's, that's interacting with that child. And again, thinking about this whole approach um, with all of the questions that we have for example, whether social affirmation is actually changing the normal trajectory of this disease and this condition. And, you know, to involve other people uh, in that, at thinking about this as an experimental approach, uh, really without getting their consent. So really, you know, the efforts now... Societally is to mandate uh, one to behave in a particular way toward an individual. I think it's intentioned well, you know, to, with the goal of helping them, but it's based upon, you know, something that's very experimental and, and may have very uh, negative consequences. That's usually the first of the interventions that is proposed, mm-hmm. and it is now recommended at younger and younger ages. And I'll, I'll reiterate again that when we were talking about that as a first stage toward the other interventions of hormones and surgery, specifically when we're talking about children, uh, recognizing that that may be not a good idea because of the normal uh, course that, that occurs in that uh, these young children.
1: Well, I definitely wanted to touch base or talk about the, the hormonal side of this because I don't think, and I didn't know this until someone told me, when people or when children are put on these cross-sex hormones, There actually is a consequence. Is it reversible? It's not necessarily, is it?
2: Um well, so yeah, there's there's many stages to that um and even before we get to the cross sex hormones, uh the first step in children is is when they start going through normally timed puberty is is to consider that pubertal development as as a not normal or a, uh, a disorder, and so just suppress that because with the body changing it it will often heighten that that dysphoria mm-hmm. um and that's the first stage um and 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 that is one of the first stages where uh it is made. The claim that it's safe and reversible um, and I, I think there's many considerations uh, with that it's very difficult to say that it's safe when it's not been uh, studied or approved in, in normally time puberty it's been used in other conditions it's used in adults in, in various cancers hormone sensitive tumors um it's used in younger children when they have abnormally early puberty but uh, it's it's not uh accurate to say that if you've demonstrated uh, safety in a pre-pubertal population that you can say the same thing uh, during puberty and for example during the time of puberty is the time that, that children uh, will accrue most of their bone density that's going to carry them through the rest of their life and when you delay that puberty um, that you put the child at risk of, of uh, long term of having low bone density and fractures later in life in fact when we're treating kids with early puberty that's why we want to be very careful about when we stop the treatment to allow that process to occur. And then that will suppress normal um, gonadal development, the development of the testes and the ovaries, the maturation. And when that pubertal suppression then is followed by cross-sex hormones, the intended, uh, well not the intended, but the expected consequence um, would be that, that this would induce um, sterility so that these children would then um, not have an opportunity to have uh, uh, children later in life. And they're making these decisions at ages when they really don't have a, a, a real understanding of, of what they're, um, they're giving up for that. Um, so that's that's one of the uh, arguments you know that's made and, and really not supported by scientific evidence to say it's reversible. What, what one means by a, a reversibility of pubertal blockade is that when you stop uh, the hormone treatment, the normal signals from the brain telling the, the gonad to work will usually resume and that part is true but you're in- interrupting a normal developmental process and so you can't really buy back the time. There are things that happen developmentally as we talked about during adolescence mm-hmm. that when that is delayed for a number of years Uh, You disrupt the normal uh, transition that occurs, and, and you can't buy back that time. Um and then, when you get to as i said when you when you've suppressed puberty uh and then give them cross sex hormones and by that I mean that you give a, a a male uh estrogen or you give a female testosterone um the consequences of that um are there are many uh concerns in in doing that first needing to recognize that the biological response to giving the same amount of hormone to a male and a female is going to be very different, and that uh is uh, in part due to the genetic differences that are present in in every cell of the body between males and females and how they respond to that and and many other medicines. So that many times, for example, the the level of of the male hormone testosterone that is given to uh, females uh, for for gender dysphoria reaches the levels that we see in other conditions that we recognize as having very serious uh, effects on on risk of heart disease and and cancer risk. Now some of the the effects have not been studied well enough to know for sure to what extent that occurs. I think there's very good evidence that there are effects on risks of stroke, um, of metabolic risks of developing diabetes and, and insulin resistance. There's uh, effects on, on risk of heart disease. Uh, the cancer risk is twofold. Uh, you know, I think it um, certainly relates to that abnormal um, exposure to to the um, the sex steroids, but it also can relate to people presenting to their physicians uh, as uh, a sex that. Really, is, is not uh, their, their true biological sex and not getting screened for, for the cancers uh, that they normally would when they're not telling their physician about their biology and the physician is, is not um, you know, inquiring deep enough to, to, to sort that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's many unknowns. Uh, what we do know, again, in the areas of fertility, uh, bone density, uh, heart risk, uh, heart disease risk, um, all of these areas um, are uh, really of concern and they need further study you know, to know what's going on. Now, the the people that are advocating this treatment will uh, recognize this and actually, uh, um, in the recommendations, are to screen for these uh, complications. So it's not being denied that these are real issues known or or potential. Um, But it's always phrased in in the context of, well, we can accept these risks uh, because we're, we're preventing suicide from occurring and when, when we question whether that data is actually true, whether we're actually making an influence on that and, and really solving the problem, the risk-benefit analysis becomes very uh, concerning, that we need to at best say we don't know for sure what we're doing and if we're going to engage in this uh, these types of interventions, we need to recognize them as experimental and have all of the safeguards that we mm-hmm. normally have when we're doing experiments in, in human beings, and all the more so, you know, the bar is much higher when we're doing experiments in children, so that needs to certainly be Acknowledged. Uh, I think the goal that everyone is that's involved in this is is appropriate and being concerned and and seeking solutions. The question is how we do that and and recognizing objectively what the data is out there, and then um, you know being able to propose alternative hypotheses, different approaches to, to uh, the management of this condition. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to even propose mm-hmm. other solutions. Um, and I'm you know specifically in the area of psychological interventions, you know, it's claimed that, that we've already, you know, closed the case on, on that. We've already determined that psychological approaches uh, are harmful and, and are, are not beneficial, you know, especially with a stated goal of allowing a child uh, to, to have these assistance but really what's what's being looked at are very very old studies um that uh, with uh, techniques that nobody would be advocating for at this point in time and so you're know, looking at a mo a modern cognitive behavioral therapy and and there's um you know lots of uh, experiments that that could be designed and conducted uh, to provide uh, alternative ways of helping these individuals without exposing them to all of the the medical risks of the uh, the hormones and surgery i,
1: I just want to I mean, we don't have a couple minutes left, but you, just something just stuck out to me. What happened to informed consent? Do the parents know that the child is at risk of being infertile? I know the child is a child. They're not going to understand that. But what about the parents? Do they get that?
2: Yeah, well, it's so, it's very interesting. They they do um, state that very well-known um consequence of the of the interventions when when they're providing the risks and benefits and and so but if you look at um, and many times they're they're not asking for the parents' consent they're actually uh, making assertions that the child themselves are are able to um, to make that um, decision on their own wow. um, and, and and so what's going on is that the questions that are being asked is what can we do to preserve uh, fertility, uh, in the situation where we're, in, we're intentionally destroying it. Um, and those are the discussions that are going on. And when you look at, at children, for example, that are counseled on the, the risk of, uh, sterility, the number that even choose, uh, to pursue, uh, methods to, um, maintain an ability to have their own biological children is, is very, very small. Uh, it's, it's, you know, less than 5%. Um, and, um, and it really, at least as a hypothesis, you know, uh, maybe relate to the fact that they don't really understand what they're giving up They're they're, they're saying well, I, I'll do anything um, And I'm not going to consider that and then uh, you know The questions that need to be looked at later in life when they do want their children and find out that they're not able to do so um, You know is is definitely something that that uh, we need to be aware of
1: well, that, That's devastating and there's no way that a child's brain is Sophisticated enough to understand consequence. I thought they're about the moment you know instant gratification right so that's not well, that's, right. Well, that's
2: very interesting. Yeah, when you think about all of the things that that uh, as a society uh, we don't let adolescents do. You know, we don't let them um buy cigarettes. We don't let them buy alcohol. There's a certain age at which we allow them, you know, to get a driver's license, um and, and when they get to, you know, vote. And it's all based upon, you know, just as a, as a pediatrician, developmentally understanding that uh, adolescents don't see the long-term consequences of their action. They're more likely to take risks, um, being impulsive um and and statements that are made um you know that that well in this one area that doesn't apply Really, there's no science to back that up and and there's uh, very good evidence that that those same uh, difficulties um, in long-term, seeing long-term consequences and risk-taking behavior uh, occur in this domain as well. You know, the the, the children that are affected um, are suffering and they're looking for help and they're going to the medical establishment, you know, to to find answers uh, for the suffering that they have, you know, in trust um, that we really, uh, they're being told that we have more certainty about uh, what we're doing, that it's prudent and it's going to be effective than we Really count based on the scientific evidence.
1: Well, in the last few seconds that we have, I, I want first I want to thank you so much for your time. I learned a great deal. I know my listeners have as well. How can people follow you?
2: Well, uh, I, I certainly if people uh, have access to the published literature, I've published a number of articles on this On the question of uh, pupital blockade. There was a paper I published in the New Atlantis, which is freely available. You could you can search that. Some of the other papers, uh, you know, may or may not require a subscription for that. Um, there's a couple of talks that that have been uh, presented the Internet as well. But I, you know, all of the information you know, that I've spoken about, um, you know, this, this is data that's readily available for those that will look for that. Uh, that to be able to be objective in looking at uh, the data that's out there and, and engaging in this conversation, um, I think everyone should understand um Uh, at least at at a basic level, uh, that uh, that we're in a a new area and there are a lot of unknowns. And so I I spend most of my time uh, doing uh, experimental research and and caring for for my patients. But but I think that there are are some resources that are available online that will be very, uh, very helpful.
0: Well,
1: thank you so much. It was a pleasure meeting you and speaking with you. And I look forward to having you on in the future.
2: Well, my pleasure.
1: Have a great day. And thank you for listening to Medicine on Call.
0: Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm.